Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So uh, you may know me from the back row where I'm uh, often seen uh, chasing my child around the auditorium trying to encourage him to not stick his finger in the open sockets over there. Uh, my name is Nicole Flores, or as Charlottesville now knows me, uh, Roberto's mommy. So, And like our shared story as Christians, my story today begins with a tiny baby, my tiny baby to be precise. This is the story of how Rose's birth helped me to see the connection between family, immigration, and solidarity in a new light. I would like to share with you what I've learned from Roe today. Becoming a mom gave me a new perspective on so many things, on what it means to be sleepless, on what it means to be selfless, on what it means to imagine, on what it means to play, on what it means to experience sorrow and what it means to experience joy. But as a mommy and a theologian, it also gave me new perspective on the connections between family, immigration, solidarity, and justice, connections that I had been researching for years before coming a parent. I started learning, writing, and teaching about immigration policy and politics during college and continued to study these issues in divinity school and eventually took them up in my doctoral work. And during divinity school, I spent time organizing with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, or the CIW. The CIW is a collective of migrant workers organizing for economic and human rights in the agricultural fields of Southwest Florida and beyond. Encountering the workers there was one of my, the first communities to show me the work of prophecy in service of the common good. Inspired by my experiences organizing and protesting with the farm workers from Mexico, Guatemala, and Haiti, I've written academic journal articles about the Latino extended family as a model for social solidarity and the common good. But all of these experiences, all of this research, took root in my heart in a new way as I began my journey of motherhood against the social backdrop of the separation of migrant families that captured the headlines last summer. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Darren and I were overjoyed to learn that I was pregnant. We had prayed that God would bless us with a child and we began to prepare our hearts and our home to welcome our son. I was overwhelmed by the promise and potential of this new little life I cradled inside me. Even so, everything about my pregnancy seemed pretty normal. 
I shared our big news on Facebook. I bought cute maternity clothes. I satisfied cravings for peanut butter and strawberries. Why? Why even? Uh, but I, and I woke up at four in the mornings during my third trimester to work on the nursery. Is that normal? I'm not sure if that's normal, but that's what I did. Uh, and then on the e evening of April 5th, uh, as we were finishing a cheeseburger dinner on the mall, I received a call from my doctor instructing me to come directly to the hospital. Some lab work had revealed that we would need to induce labor that night. I was still in shock as Darren and my sister helped me waddle along the downtown mall toward our car. I had about an hour to brace myself for the holy work of having a baby. I was in labor for 23 hours, and each one sucked. Pardon my French. <laughs> it was not fun. Especially hour 13, which was the one right before. I was like, just give me the epidural. Okay, <laughs> okay I give in. Um, but I was sustained during that time by cherry-flavored popsicles, uh, lots of Netflix episodes of Jane the Virgin, and my eagerness <laughs> to see Roe's face for the first time. It wasn't until the very moment that Roe was born that we realized that something was terribly wrong. He was not crying. He was barely breathing. His skin was pale and his body was limp. Still disoriented from delivery, I asked, why can't I hear him crying? And Darren and my sister did their best to keep me calm as the delivery room filled with doctors and nurses and blue scrubs. A team from the UVA NICU determined that Roe required immediate treatment with therape therapeutic hypothermia. They would place him on a cooling blanket for three days with the desired outcome being that the cold would prevent his brain from swelling and repair any damage uh, that was incurred from being without oxygen during delivery. There was no time to ask questions before he was taken away. There was no time to hold him in our arms. I barely caught a glimpse of Roe before the doctors rolled him out of the delivery room in a plastic incubator. Lifting my head from the hospital bed, I could see his full head of dark brown hair and his gorgeous dark brown eyes. And I gotta tell you, he was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. But at that moment, I did not know if he would survive until I got to hold him in my arms. Thankfully, our fears for his survival passed quickly. But there were still many unanswered questions during those early hours. And while some of those questions were medical in nature, a lot of them were theological. Why was this happening to our baby? Why was this happening to our family? Where was God in the midst of our fear and uncertainty? I prayed that it was all a bad dream, that I would wake up and discover that everything was as it would be as it was before, but it was all really happening. And at that moment, all we could do to help him was wait and pray. We gave Roe the middle name of Emmanuel, a reminder of God's presence with us, even in the midst of trial and uncertainty. Roe's treatment was such that we were not able to hold him for the first three days of his life. And so we became NICU parents. Day by day, hour by hour, we sat by Roe's bedside, waiting until we could hold him in our arms. 
Those days and hours were the longest of my life, and I often wept while Darren and my sister held me in their arms. And yet, we were able to find joy sitting there by Roy's, uh, Roe's bedside. We read to him from his bunny Bible now, that he now throws around his nursery. Um, <laughs> we sang lullabies to him in English and Spanish. We introduced him to his grandparents, aunties, and friends. He even got to meet Pastor Wynn and Pastor Brendan, who came there to spend time with us. We formed circles around his bassinet, watching, singing, praying. And as we prayed for Rose's recovery, we also found ourselves praying for the other babies in the NICU. We could not hold our baby for three days, but there were other parents who could not hold their babies for weeks or even months. Maybe some of you have had that experience yourselves. There were some babies who might not survive. There were some babies who did not survive. The grief and worry among the other families in the NICU was immense. But so was their strength and resilience. Their witness inspired us during the most, those most difficult moments during Rose's time in the hospital. We began to see their struggle as our struggle. We began to see their joy as our joy. We began to see their babies as our babies. We began to see their families as our families. On the sixth day of his life, Roe finished his treatment and came home with us. He turned 19 months old last week, and as you may have noticed, he romps around the auditorium during service, and he has become the beautiful, thriving, joyful baby that we always dreamt would be ours. He dazzles everyone he meets with his bright eyes, warm smile, and silly laugh. All of this time later, though, I still think of the other babies from the NICU, and I think about their families, and whether their babies are thriving or struggling. I still pray for their mommies and daddies, for their grandmas and grandpas, for their brothers and sisters. Because during that most painful and vulnerable moment of our lives, they became family to us. After Roe came home, we settled into the rhythms of life with a young infant. We fed him and fed him and fed him some more. <laughs> In fact, feeding the baby took over our entire lives. Whereas I once spent my days obsessing over politics and current events, I could hardly remember which day of the week it was, let alone what was going on in the world. But I found myself up, of course, at all hours of the day and night. And during the late night marathon feedings, I would catch up on news on my iPhone. One night, I opened my Facebook news feed to reports of immigrant and refugee families separated from each other at the border. I read in horror and sadness stories of young children, children of tender age, removed from their families, incarcerated amid appalling conditions. Those of us who are responsible for children know that caring for them, especially as a newborn or in their earliest years of life, is a full-time job. Even doing the bare minimum of care, diapers, feeding, soothing, and the like, requires a great deal of time and resources. And babies are rarely content with our bare minimum. But this effort is all worth it, as we know, when our children are happy and healthy. 
The policy of family separation disregards the essential needs of children by removing them from their primary caregivers during the most vulnerable moments of their life. Nim Tottenham, who researches the developmental role uh, that stable caregivers play for young children at Columbia University, argues that parents are the ultimate regulators of their children, giving them what they need for maintaining a diverse range of biological systems, nutrition, temperature, emotion, and cognition. She argues that we should think of this parent-child relationship as a single organism. Removing young children from regulatory systems vital for their survival is an attack on their flourishing and even on their chances for survival. Separating children from parents is thus an urgent concern for justice or what we owe to the most vulnerable of God's people among us. My eyes welled up with tears as I looked down at my tiny, sweet infant sipping milk in the quiet of his nursery. Why was this happening to these babies? Why is this happening to these families? And where is God in the midst of their fear, uncertainty, and suffering? Tears streamed down my face as I rocked Roberto Emmanuel in my arms. I began to pray with Ro, thinking of every baby needing her mommy that night, thinking of every baby wanting to be soothed by the sound of her daddy's heartbeat that night. I prayed for those parents and babies, asking God to be with them in their suffering, pleading with God to change the hearts and minds of those who had devised and implemented this unjust and inhumane policy, begging for a swift end to this assault on life. The news of these separations was disturbing to so many of us and certainly to every parent I know. But it resonated with me in a way that I did not expect. It brought me back to the nights I delivered Roe. It brought me back to the moments when I did not know if I would ever see my baby again. It brought me back to the NICU, sitting among the rows of bassinets with babies fighting for survival. And whether we are parents or not, whether we have experienced being separated from our families or not, so many of us took the separation of these young children from their families to heart. Their struggle is our struggle. Their joy is our joy. Their babies are our babies. Their families are our family. It is this recognition that their families are our family that is the cornerstone of a Christian theology of solidarity. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Discerning the signs of the times, we see that we have a habit of thinking of ourselves as individuals without meaningful connections to others. Social media allows us to see the suffering of others in real time but it is easy for us to forget that we are related to the people whose faces appear on our news feeds. But we are connected to each other through more than social media. We are connected to each other in Christ. Jesus is the root of our relationships. He beckons us to recognize our connection to each other in him. He invites us to cultivate those connections. 
As Becca Stevens, the founder of Thistle Farms writes, we are called to remain together through our mutual connection to the vine, to branch out and bear the fruit of healing. The metaphor of family helps us to see the connections that exist between ourselves and all of God's people. It highlights the responsibility we have to care for one another. Of course, no family is perfect. Family life itself can be a site of suffering and abuse. But families need not be perfect for us to recognize the moral obligations familial belonging places on us. Viewing ourselves as members of a large and loving, complicated and conflictual extended family in Christ allows us to recognize our moral obligations to care for one another. The most challenging virtue of our time may be solidarity, wrote the US Catholic bishops in their 2002 pastoral reflection called A Place at the Table. And I think this is true. But imagining the common good in terms of family can help us to enact a just solidarity in our time. Father David Hollenbach, who is a teacher of mine at Boston College and is now at Georgetown University, defines justice as the minimal level of solidarity required for human flourishing. The minimal level of solidarity required for human flourishing. His student, uh, or former student, now colleague, Dr. Megan Clark, argues that relationships of solidarity are characterized by mutuality, equality, participation, and vulnerability. Taken together, Father Hollenbach and Dr. Clark offer a framework for what I like to call just solidarity, one that is based on just relationships among persons that foster justice for all. As we strive to cultivate solidarity, we must recognize that all forms of solidarity are not self-evidently good. As we know, here in Charlottesville, white nationalists enacted a violent and hateful solidarity against our black, Jewish, Muslim, and immigrant community members. They converged upon our town to instill fear in the hearts of others. Theirs is a solidarity of fear, intolerance, and hatred. But those who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly responded to this solidarity of hatred with a different kind of solidarity. We work to defend the dignity of our vulnerable neighbors, even if this comes at a cost to ourselves. It is the kind of solidarity that is the cornerstone of the common good. It is this kind of solidarity that looks at a suffering child, at a suffering family, and sees them as one's own. It is this kind of solidarity that Jesus took with humankind, becoming like us in all ways but sin, becoming a nursing baby who liked to be close to his mommy. It is Jesus' solidarity with us that saves. On June 30th, 2018, protesters gathered in cities and towns across the United States and around the world to show their solidarity with the migrant and refugee families who had been separated from each other at the border. And though he was too tiny to stand or even sit up on his own, Darren and I knew it was important for Roe to participate in this protest here in Charlottesville. He was so tiny, oh my gosh, what happened? 
Of course, Roe will not remember that humid late June afternoon, sitting in a stroller surrounded by the other babies of Charlottesville and their parents. He won't remember hearing the chants, families belong together, rising over the hills. He won't remember the prayers we prayed for his fellow babies separated from their parents. But for Roe, this protest was the beginning of his training in the habits of solidarity. I pray that my son learns step by baby step to see his neighbors as members of his family in Christ. I pray that he learns to stand up for his family, even if doing so is inconvenient or unpopular. What does it look like to treat our neighbors as family? Of course, families are diverse and particular, but I think each of our families offers some perspective on what family means for solidarity and the common good. Being family means caring for each other. Being family means showing up for each other. Being family means holding each other accountable. What does your family do that can help in us envision a social ethic for justice, solidarity, and the common good? My siblings in Christ, my family in Christ, I pray, the same, I pray the same prayer for you today as I pray for my son, that you make just solidarity your habit. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.